Guys, we're in the middle of the pandemic and these are trying times. It's hard on our mental health, our mental state, and this is why I love our sponsor today, BetterHelp. They're the largest online counseling platform worldwide. They change the way people get help with facing life's challenges by providing convenient, discreet, affordable access to licensed therapists. BetterHelp makes professional counseling available anytime, anywhere, through a computer, tablet, or smartphone. It's brilliant. Sign up today. Go to betterhelp.com backslash solving healthcare and get 10% off sign up fees. Welcome to Solving Healthcare. I'm Quedro Caramante. I'm an ICU and palliative care physician here in Ottawa and the founder of Resource Optimization Network. We are on a mission to transform healthcare in Canada. I'm going to talk with physicians, nurses, administrators, patients, and their families because inefficiencies, overwork, and overcrowding affects us all. I believe it's time for a better healthcare system that's more cost-effective, dignified, and just for everyone involved. Welcome back, everybody. Thank you for joining the show. I am super excited to bring Dr. Zena Kayat to the mix. This episode is going to blow your mind grapes for real. Before jumping into it, let me tell you about some of our ongoing promos. A lot of hype with our cancer and lifestyle modifications episode with Jason Fung and and, uh, Stephen Tucker. If you hadn't caught it yet, go to Solving Healthcare ca backslash cancer. Check out that bad boy. As you may have heard in other recent episodes, I've been doing a lot of keynote speaking in regards to COVID response, BIPOC uh, communities, implications, and also anti-Black racism. If you need to track me down, you can find me at quadcast99.gmail.com or just go to solvinghealthcare.ca. It's been fun doing a lot of this advocacy work. Okay, let me tell you about Zena. She is what you call a future strategist. Okay. She's looking at ways how we can plan for the future in a way that we can improve the care delivery, improve the care in general to our Canadians, embracing technology so we can provide more efficient, compassionate care. And I, this is my language. I heard her speaking uh, at one of our board meetings and I was at the edge of my seat. I was like waving my hands in the air. Like, I just don't care. Okay. It was amazing. A little bit about Zaina. Like she's on, she works for the SE Health, um, looking at ways that uh, improving care delivery for our elderly population. She's on faculty at Singular University, Exponential Medicine Stream. Uh, She's got an appointment with the Rotman School of Management. She's got PhD uh, back in 2001 for uh, diabetes research. And let me tell you something, she's full of knowledge and you guys are going to be blown away about, about all this content. Yo, it's going to be, it's, it's honestly, it's been one of my favorite episodes lately. So listen, without further ado, Dr. Zena Kayat, let's go. Quadcast Nation. We got another fantastic episode. If those that are watching on video, I'm actually standing for this one because I'm that jazzed up. And I know Zaina, you're, you're jazzed up for this too. If you're not yet, you're going to be. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I would like to introduce to you, Dr. Zaina Kayat. She is all things healthcare futurist, really one of the great minds in terms of where healthcare is going uh, in the future. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Quadra. Look, I'm going to record that intro and make that my morning alarm uh, uh, to start the day. Absolutely. Gee. Absolutely. We could add an interpretive dance in there, too. But uh, thanks for joining. I, you, you're a mom. You're I don't know how many companies you're uh, you're a part of uh, author and uh, great. I mean, just one of the best minds as far as I'm concerned in terms of healthcare. And just a quick background. We, we, I got introduced through, uh, you were on a board of governors meeting at Chio and what you threw down absolutely blew my mind. So why don't we just start with how did you get into this theme of being a futurist? Like when I hear futurist, I, I think of all, obviously like a robot or a, I don't know, Han Solo. Um, maybe that's a little bit weird. I don't know. But, uh, yeah. How did you get involved in this? So, I mean, first thing I, you know, people like to 
call me a futurist. I, I, if you want to, you have to put one word in front, which is applied futurist. Okay. okay. So I am not interested in pontificating about the future, predicting the future just for the sake of it. And, you know, being like, I don't want to be a thought leader and a writer and thinker and let others get their hands dirty. Um, you know, I work for a 112-year-old healthcare delivery organization called SE Health. I'm their in-house future strategist, which means we actually, you know, design, test, incubate, and scale next practices in health and care, not best practices, uh, next practices. <laughs> um, so, so to do that, you need to have your, you know, a sense of where the future is going around elderly care, home care. That's what I do so that you can translate those signals into the choices you make today. So that's, that's just what I do. So it's really just more of a, you know, creating the future instead of protecting the past, which we love to do in healthcare is protect the past. Absolutely. Uh, Sorry, yeah. go ahead. I was no, just going to say we are dinosaurs, by the way, but yes, I <laughs> um, totally agree. Perhaps uh, for all good reasons, but it's not like I was born and I was like, oh, I want to be a health future. No, like, you know, as you know, in your career, you tumble and fumble and things happen. And then, you, you, you know, you eventually find the sweet spot where you like your mojo is aligned and it all just kind of clicks. And, I, you know, I'm 47 and, and I'd say I'm kind of there finally now. It took trying this and trying that and learning this and learning that to figure out my place. And this feels like a really good place. No, absolutely. And I got to say, you are a very um, convincing, dynamic speaker. So like you literally had me on the edge of your seat when you were presenting to us uh, a couple months back. Um, so what I, I do think there was a point that uh, you made uh, in that talk that I, I think it's worth bears repeating is do we think about the future of or future directions in healthcare enough? Do you think this is something that we need to um, in generate in general, like hospitals, other uh, healthcare organizations, are we in fact embracing uh, the future directions of healthcare? So I think there's thinking about it and then there's doing, right? So again, you know, uh, and I, 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 I'm not a fan of think without action because kind of what's the point? So think about it, absolutely. There's a conference every minute of every day about the future of health. Uh, you know, people like me get invited to speak at boards like yours or conferences. Uh, you know, right now there's tons of writing and blogging and conferences and events. Uh, and sessions about the future of health post-COVID. That's a very popular topic right now. So it's not like, I don't know that there's anyone whose head is so buried in the sand that they really either are not aware of where everything's going and, and more importantly, don't even understand that for themselves. I think we're there, thankfully. However, the gap between knowing where things are going and having the uh, you know, courage, power, will, fortitude, pick a word, to start to play with that now and challenge your current models, that's the big gap, I think, in the unfinished business of the majority of Canadian healthcare. No, absolutely. And, and while we're on the topic, because I think it's on the minds of many about the post-COVID, what f the future of healthcare looks like there. Like, I, I mean, we've talked a lot on our show quite a bit about, you know, uh, care coming home virtual care being more enhanced. Where do you see Zena like healthcare going post COVID? So I've been kind of from a lot of the reading, a lot of what we're seeing, I've summarized into six, six big areas. I think that will be uh, like that the, they will shape choices. We make bets we make and where we focus. I think one on the top of the list is, is mental health, mm. um, you know, will be like really elevated to, um, it's going to get the kind of attention it needs and deserves uh, in very new ways. So I think that's going to elevate. And I think everyone needs to be working there. Uh, it will be a worse impact than the pandemic on multiple levels, you, economic, you think, eh? health. Oh, for sure. I can already see it in just a few data points in my personal yeah. life. No, I, it, <laughs> you know? I, I honestly, I don't need to ruin your flow, but Zena, I think it, yeah. it is one yeah. of the least I shouldn't say the least. I think it's it's absolutely underappreciated. My wife's a psychologist. We're friends with child psychologists, and the amount of um, stories and kids that are struggling, 
couples that are struggling is insane. And, and so, yeah, health workers, like everywhere. And that's let alone the fallout of all the trauma that will then be processed very shortly from this last year. So, so I think that's one, like we got to shore up for, it's going to need very new business models, care models, a whole new set of players will emerge in this place that are not the traditionals. Uh, so I think that's one. Um, two, you know, uh, you know, we love to obsess about the quadruple aim, and it's been great that we added, you know, a fourth to make it quadruple because forever it was the triple aim, right? So as the KPIs, you know, the, the metrics that govern what you do. So quadruple, right? Healthy, you know, good outcomes. So it's results, cost savings or good costs, um, patient experience and now and staff experience. Those four were added. Uh, the staff experience was added. Uh, there's two more aims. It's a sextuple aim coming out of, you know, what we've been through. <laughs> Equity. Oh, yes. Equity Preach. becomes its own aim. Yeah. So whether that's elderly, First Nations, people who are racialized, people who are isolated, I mean, whatever, but it's its own plane as costs and outcomes and experience. It's not a sub mm-hmm. anymore. It used to be kind of a sub of quality because it was kind of a version of access. Not Way anymore. Down there, by the way. Way down there, because of course, when you're a medical model, you're going to obsess on clinical outcomes as your quality measure and safety. We love to obsess about safety. Uh, to me, that's the minimum standard. Um, and then the second one is access itself becomes an aim that again is separated out. So physical access, digital access, right? Digital literacy, language, culturally sensitive, user experience. Um, so that's going to require a new set of capabilities and skills, just like when quality became our obsession, everybody hired a chief quality officer. Everybody had quality metrics. We built an entire agency in Ontario with 200 employees just for quality. Do you, do you, have, a, do you have an opinion on this? Like, do you think, like, I'm just, I don't know if I'm reading into it, but like, uh, is no, there, no, I'm just saying okay. the infrastructure will catch up. Okay on these other new things. So we emancipate from, you know, some very narrow views of what are our metrics of healthcare. That's my point. Just like innovation, right? Everybody now has an innovation team an innovation office. There's courses, there's infrastructure because it's the new layer of capabilities for healthcare. Mm -hmm. These two are going to be the next. Every health org now has a diversity inclusion, something officer, equity officer. We didn't have that a year ago, my friend. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's number two. Number three, uh, and I just like to reframe language of home and digital. I don't think that's the right word. The, the big driver is the continued de-physicalization uh, and de-kind uh, of uh, hospitalization of healthcare, yes. which means you don't go to the care, the care comes to you. Uh, there's a great saying with the vaccines. Like vaccines to the people, not people to the vaccines. Preach, preach. I'm <laughs> like, serious, especially when it comes to marginalized communities, yo. Oh, yeah. Like, for real, you got you got Peel, you got these Brett, uh, um, Scarborough or areas where, you know, these guys need to get to work. They can't take time off. You want to really bite this and nip this in the bud? Bring it to them. Bring you know it to saying? the people. I hope, we're, I hope we're thinking that way. Zena. Some are, but again, because we're such a facility-based paradigm, what did we do with testing? Hospitals. Mm. What did mm. we do with vaccines? Hospitals. Like, really? You know, so like, imagine if there was no Amazon and your only option for buying anything was going to a big metropolis called a mall. Yeah. Like, who does that anymore? Yeah. Some people do, but it's not the dominant channel. So anyway, and then de-physicalization is a little bit different. That includes, you know, the physical aspects of bricks and mortar, but that's hyper miniaturization. So massive capital things like MRI machines, surgery, highly minimalized almost to nothing. And eventually they do become nothing because they get replaced with software, right? So digital Uh therapeutics will replace pills uh, like virtual reality as a therapeutic for pain management, as an example. Um, software will replace humans hmm. for high volume, low cognition, repetitive uh, cognitive tasks that you would rather save your precious, highly trained humans <laughs> to do the high value stuff that only humans can do. You know? So almost like, not to ruin your flow again, but yeah. almost no. like using AI to 
you know, book these, not even AI. Just, not even AI, my friend. Just yeah. book your, you book just, your appointment. Yeah. yeah, just. Just good automation software. Yeah. You don't need no intelligence for that, no, right? That's, that's so true. And again, COVID, obviously, this shift uh, massively accelerated because now the cost of physical contact became a major variable in deciding whether or not you get care, how you get it and where you get it. And so um, this trend that was happening anyway, you know, just it really accelerated. So, you know, Kwaja, when we meet in a, you know, a year, chemo will be done at home. Dialysis will be done at home. Um, you said in a year? Uh, well, it'll be starting in Canada. Okay. It'll all be normal in most places in the world. But uh, phlebotomy, like all those labs, we won't need to have all the labs. The phlebotomy will be done at home. This is why you know? I was so excited to have you on, people. Yeah. You see this future? This is, but, and like, what I like about what you're saying, Zana, too, is like how sensical it is and how I, and, and like, we'll talk a little bit about the yeah. logistics about scaling this too in, in, in a bit, but absolutely, if you could bring care to home, you don't, and it just, I think even there's going to be a mad economic case for a lot of these interventions, but yeah. yes. Yeah, I, I there's an it. economic case, there's experience case, there's so many cases. Uh, and, and, and with a country with a huge floppy geography like Canada, Wow, is there a case, yeah. you know, from uh, equity and access. Okay, number four, related, but a little bit different is this kind of framing of care anywhere, but also work anywhere, mm. uh, which would mean school and education anywhere, right? We have a highly trained workforce that is a lot of capital and cost to just prepare this amazing workforce in healthcare, uh, and let alone where care happens uh, and the work to support that, whether that's government policy workers, you know, I'm a corporate employee, back office, finance, IT, whatever. This opens up so much options for, again, new experiences, lower cost, better experiences, but optionality. And for when we have such a workforce shortage in healthcare and a talent shortage and a tech shortage, I think this is going to be a game changer for a country like Canada that will not be able to groom the talent it needs to support the, you know, the, the demands of healthcare. Um, number five is just the whole fallout of the nursing home um, challenges. I think everyone's commented that the same issues have been talked about. The same reports have been written for 25 years. Nobody was surprised. I think this one will be a tipping point that will finally lead to some pretty big changes. And, and I think there's good signals of that. And then finally, the, the, the sixth area of focus is just the workforce of healthcare, uh, the scarcity of that workforce, burnout. And, you know, just like what happened coming out of the Black Plague, you know, one type of economy that will emerge from COVID is the essential economy, right? The essential economy. And, and, or some call it the caregiver economy, but the essential economy would include your grocers at Sobeys and uh, your janitors and your, you know, your subway drivers. Um, but our health workforce, which is 2 million Canadians <laughs> um, um, will emerge. Right. And like what happened after the black plague, when the governance model of the day was serfdom. So you had your noble class and you had your serfs and, you know, your serfs were your, your peasants, your farmers, and then all of a sudden, you know, this disease decimates, I don't know, 25 million Europeans, one third of the whole continent. Uh, now the most important people are the people who make your food to let you eat if you're mm. the noble. And now they had power because uh, one, you can't let them die off like flies. Right. And two, you need these people. And that's kind of all you need back then was just food, right? There was no other service economy. And so, you know, the black flag was credited with ending feudalism and serfdom. And I think that and there's some economists in Canada that write a lot about this. I think this service economy, the essential economy, the caregiver economy will emerge and we will, uh, you know, hold these people so sacred, how we pay them, how we honor them uh, and how we recruit them. And I think personal support workers will emerge an attractive job that you will be honored to have. You know, it will not be a stepping stone, you know, to go do something else. Uh, and, and that gets me really excited, but wow, do we got to watch out for the burnout of our health workforce. Uh, that could be a massive wow. risk. Wow. Oh my God. I'm so, okay. I'm jazzed up for a few reasons, but we're going to hit up a, a, a few of these points. We're going to start with number one again, the mental health 
crisis that we, that you're predicting in the future. So what kind of in, in terms like and it ties well into the burnout of a lot of healthcare providers, by the way, um, where do you see the models changing? Like, for example, are you see are you predicting, you know, we've been saying even Andre Picard's been saying, why aren't mental health services part of the, you know, health Canada act? Health like, act. Yeah, yeah. Like why should Canadians have to pay 200? I think my wife charged 220 an hour. Uh, and if you don't have insurance, we're in a government town, which is, you know, we'll give blessed for that. But like, there's a ton of people that would need the care that don't have the funds. You know what I'm saying? So where do you yeah. see that changing in terms of the delivery? Again, I'm going to admit this is not my day-to-day expertise. Um, like I'm much more in elderly care, so I don't want to kind of go f- beyond what I know. But just from what I'm seeing um, is absolutely number one will just be a much massive uh, democratization of access, just mm-hmm. access, right? Because again, we, you know, we bottled up these services in highly trained professionals called psychiatrists and psychologists, which you cannot scale. Mm-hmm. And those people required you to physically be in the same room at the same time for it to count <laughs> as care. <laughs> Well, that's a massive access problem. Um, and so I think I think now just because of all the conditions, as you know, um, mental health doesn't really need a physical exam. You know, mm. it's like the one of the it, you know, it always was the first to go in terms of this idea of decoupling time and place from a care exchange. Um, that now really opens things up because you can source a wider pool of professionals and uh, let really anybody access anywhere through whatever channel. And the old school copper line telephone, good enough. Like this does not need to be. So, and uh, just a signal, one signal, like a little company like Mind Beacon, uh, which started, I want to say five years ago, uh, as, you know, a digital platform for accessing psychotherapy. And, and again, the founder did this because he himself, who was a private equity, you know, leader in, in Canadian business, Sam Dubach, he shares the story of how he kind of came into a pretty serious encounter of mental health challenges from a crisis in his life. And he's like wealthy, very connected in the city of Toronto and could not navigate how to get help. Really? And he's like, then how the hell would, you know, anyone else who's not a white male, rich, you know, privileged person do this. So then he stopped everything and started this company. Anyway, they IPO'd last year during the Mm. pandemic. I've known personally dozens of virtual mental health companies that have been at it for 10, 15, 20 years and gotten Mm. nowhere. And now all of a sudden this company in four or five years, you know, is now traded on the public stock markets, which means there's a confidence from the markets that if you invest in this, you know, you're going to get a return, right? So uh, I think that's a great signal that uh, we don't got time to dilly dally here. And we're going to find whoever can make the solution that gets to people, (laughs) gets people the care they need. um, We're going to back them and it doesn't need to be your old institutions. And like, this is a, we need to embrace where like the access, the tech where we could, just like we're doing now, Zoom call, we could access some of the best psychologists, psychiatrists, counselors, or what have you, companies, like one of our sponsors is BetterHelp, exactly the same principle. Yeah, and obviously they've been blowing up. Um, But yeah, absolutely, this should be embraced. I still think as as a society, we, we still need to support, like financially support these initiatives. Like, like, I, you know what I mean? Like Absolutely. I, it's, it's really, I mean, when we talk about equity too, like you think about who's been hit the hardest, like from COVID, from the measures we do to mitigate COVID. And then, you know, some of the secondary consequences when it comes to mental illness and all that stuff and having access. So like, yes, this needs to be better uh, accessible or, or yeah. fin- financially supported. Both financially supported and democratized. I just think, though, that when you democratize, you take a lot of the capital and labor costs out of, a, you know, it's not an expensive mm-hmm. model. So you actually can do a lot more with, a, with you know, lesser equal resources. But of course, you also need to add a lot more resources that are fit for purpose. No question. Yeah. So 
Yeah. So that's what I think is going to happen there. And just to be clear, right. I mean, we work with the elderly primarily in their homes, I'd say 30, don't quote me, but 30% or more are, have commingled mental health with their frailty. So like, it's not like this is its own thing. It's everywhere. It is absolutely everywhere. I mean, we see it. I don't want to mess up the quote either, but even within our ICU, I think we did recently do a, or if we haven't released the study, it's coming out soon about uh, mental illness and outcomes. And yeah, it's something about 30% of our patients will have some uh, psychiatric diagnosis. So um, yes, we need to be all over this. The other point, number two, in terms of adding in the, what'd you call it? Sex plet? The, (laughs) <laughs> well, it's, so we have the quadruple aim. So it was a triple aim yeah. forever. Then it, I'm like, two, three years ago, it became the quadruple aim because uh, we added staff experience yeah. as, again, on the equal plane. And now I'm a sextuple aim. Yeah. Maybe it sounds dirty. No, I, I mean, we're, we're dirty on the show. Um, the, uh, it's, it's such good points, too, about, I mean, the staff experience for retention, for burnout, obviously, we, we could see the benefits of that, especially post-COVID. Like our crew, we were white. We were scared. And especially initially in the pandemic, but the equity and access piece, I, you know, I, I do want to say there's like, there was structural systemic issues that really hit home with the equity piece. And the fact that we've been bringing more attention to this, especially in light of COVID, um, you know, I've been obviously pretty active in, in advocating for BIPOC community, how, how they've been hit hard, um, and uh, so I think so important. And then the access piece, like, where do you see, where, where do you see some of maybe, do you, th- do you think it's going to be tech that enhances access? Do you think it's just more resources? Where do you see access being enhanced? I mean, it's all of those, the above. I mean, again, I, you know, um, uh, so sometimes uh, access, the barrier is just physical access. And so you do want to be able to have alternative channels that are, let's call it good enough. Uh, I can't stand the debate that somehow thinks in person is absolutely superior gold standard of care and everything else is like the ugly orphan cousin. Yeah. Redheaded <laughs> No, you know, like, like actually this experience with you right now to me is way superior to if, if we were in a studio, because I would have had to get on a train get to you in four hours, Mm -hmm. you know, lose a half a day. Like, no, I don't want that. So uh, personally for me. So, uh, but I, again, I just think that user experience, if it's a digital tool, UX experience, like the, you know, can I hear it? Can I see it? Can I touch the buttons? Do I have to remember 55 passwords? Um, Like, you know, culturally sensitive language, cognitive level, like all these things become vital because the care you experience is the care you get how you perceive it experienced it's bad care if it's a bad experience Mm. (laughs) so i you know but i think just the minimal of the you know maslow's is just being able to access services in the first Mm -hmm. place like you're talking about uh i think that you know i just think that's now elevated Absolutely. And I think this is one thing that's beautiful about embracing the the virtual platforms is like literally people in a Callowit, people in Prussia, if you wanted, could have access to uh, care and, 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 and suggestions from a medical team, just like we're having now. And to me, that's game changing. Game changing. So this morning I was so excited. Uh, I opened my, you know, my, did my reading for the day. Uh, uh, Shoppers Drug Mart, which launched this health app with Loblaws, the PC health app, uh, they launched in Nunavut really? today. Right. Yeah. So I don't even have the stupid <laughs> app. You know what I mean? Like, and I'm in downtown Toronto. So now they can get access to a highly trained clinician because they're partnered with Maple to get access to doctors uh, in 35 seconds. Uh, they can have all their data, like, you know, just as no different from what I can do here, you know, so it's very democratizing. I just want to give you another example of access that I think is a great case study. I use it when I teach my course uh, at the Rotman Business School. Um, this uh, COVID alert yeah. app, right? You know, it was great that the private sector came through, worked with government, Apple, BlackBerry, you know. Uh, and it was really, a, you know, an exposure yeah. app, right? Not a contact tracing, but an exposure app. So they did all this, you know, and as you know, if you don't have a critical mass of people using such a tool, it's got no utility, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. 
I don't know what the number has to be for a tipping point, but in a population of 35 million, I got to guess you'd need to get half, something like that. Somebody knows better than me. So it launches and uh, it doesn't work if you're on, you know, an older Apple phone <laughs> or an older operating system on an Android. Well, that's an access problem, folks. You know what I mean? So now to be able to know if I've been exposed to somebody who po tested positive for COVID, I need to be able to afford an iPhone 10 or higher. Like what? You know, so the, just all those are going to become like non-negotiable factors in designing policies, products, services, uh, and care models. Uh, makes so much sense too. Like, if, and once again, I, I keep saying the same thing, but you always go to the heart of the problem and often it's in the less, like the more disenfranchised. So you have to make sure they have the same access if you want to make a dent in any of this. But yeah, no, that is amazing. The One of the, the areas too, your point number three about de-hospitalizing, I'm now making up a word, de-physicalization, um, <laughs> to me is one of the most exciting things because I'll tell you, just I'll tell you why. Because I do a lot of my research is on, on resource use, like how to, how to save healthcare dollars and improve care, right? And one of the number one ways that you could prevent, you could really take a dent in, 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 in reducing costs is don't walk into a hospital, specifically don't walk into an ICU. When you're, we're talking $3,000 a day, if you could do anything in your power to prevent that admission. And what I get really excited about is how tech can help with this, like using AI to, to predict, like we're doing a study right now, using AI machine learning to predict if a patient's likely to deteriorate even before they look like they're sick. You know what I'm saying? So you could intervene and prevent yep. them from uh, requiring an intensive care uh, bed, especially as we're getting a, a population that's aging, especially that we're actually getting better and better at keeping people alive. Um, so these factors need to, to be, to be, uh, we need to think about. So, yeah, I, I is there any in uh, that section three, um, anything in your mind, Zaina, that gets you really excited in your world? Yeah. So I think again, this de-physicalization, de-hospitalization, absolutely uh, technology will enable that because all technology does from the history of time is replaces labor and capital with mm -hmm. software. Okay. Like, you know, or you new tools. So, so, you know, pills are technology that replaces other ways of getting to the same outcome that are very labor capital expensive and a bad experience. You know, uh, you know what you just described an algorithm that's sensing and mining and catching things early is way easier to do than, you know, you having a call with that patient every minute of every day, <laughs> you know, to find the early sign of something. So that's great. I will just say though, some of this doesn't even need to tech, like, like tech will help. Of course it helps get the cost model down, but like, I'll just give you an example and, and then that'll, I'll just share an announcement that happened this week. That is a very good signal of this direction. Um, you know, uh, on, in Ontario, they copied a little bit off Medicare and created bundles as a payment model. So the idea is uh, before or after a hospital encounter, like a surgery, whether that's predict, you know, elective or, or a surprise surgery, like from a stroke or something like that, uh, we kind of know from a lot of thousands of data points, roughly what should happen in that episode of care. It's fairly predictable. So you kind of know what the risk rates are, what the outcome should be and how long it should take and what it should cost. Uh, the old way was, uh, you know, all the pieces like the primary care, the hospital people, the surgery, the drugs, the devices, each got paid their part because they just billed for it. Uh, and the bundle model, which Medicare introduced in the U.S. and Medicaid is, uh, no, 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 here's the price for the whole thing. You players, you figure out who's going to do what and how you're going to divvy up the money. This is what we're prepared to pay. And, oh, you got to hit these outcomes. So Anyway, money got released for eight bundles, uh, post-cardiac surgeries, uh, stroke bundle, hip replacement, um, those kinds of things. So we did one with Trillium Hospital where we would uh, try to get people after cardiac surgery, instead of five days length of stay, recovering in the hospital. And as you said, you can quantify every day of hospital 
a bunch of things, not just what it costs, but decompensation of the person and what have you. Uh, and nobody wants to be in hospital. <laughs> uh, anyway, get them home in a day and finish that hospital care at the home, which we call the home spital. Um, and so sure, you need some tech tools like you're saying that are monitoring blood pressure, whatever. So sure, you've got a few tools. Guess what? The, and then, you know, as home care people, we do the care in the home because you don't need a doctor. You just need a nurse and a bit of help. And then you could check in with the medical person at the hospital. Guess what? The number one technology that made this a slam dunk value proposition, no readmissions, old school telephone, yeah. because these patients just wanted to know that they can call somebody 24 seven and we're there, mm. you know, and guess what? Did they call 24 seven? No, we ramped up all these 24 seven nurses to be ready, <laughs> you know, because patients are going to oh. call at four in the morning, you know, no, they didn't. They just wanted to know they, they had that. And the old model was you were discharged from hospital and you were told if anything seems off, come back to the ER. Like, and in, in our model, it's like, no, just call your nurse. And if you need to, they're going to come to you your house. You know how sexy this is? So, oh, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Sorry. Yeah, no. No, 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 no You know how sexy <laughs> this is, man, for real? Like, snap. Yeah. No, like, I'll, let me just say this to people that, that are listening. You, the longer you stay in hospital, for real, the more likely you are to have complications, the more, the, uh, the more likely you are to uh, stay longer. Do you know what I mean? So the idea of getting you home as soon as possible in your environment, you sleep better, you're probably less likely to be delirious, you're saving a ton, your experience is better, your food is much better. Better. <laughs> you don't have bells ringing yeah, all night. Exactly. You know. you don't have, this is um, beautiful. And this, so this has happened already. This has been happening. It's been published. Again, this is not rocket science. This is the standard of care in most places. There's at least one hospital in Canada, Women's College Hospital, that basically reinvented their whole business model that where they do surgery, but you are home within 12 hours. Nobody can sleep overnight at this hospital. And their previous length of stay pro-surgery was five days. So you could take it from five days to 12 hours with, you know, significant business model innovation, a lot of tech. Uh, it's totally doable. So, so just a signal on this one of the de-physicalization, de-hospitalization, and then linked to my fourth one of Care Anywhere. Just this week, a coalition launched in the U.S. of Intermountain Healthcare, massive, highly innovative health system, Ascension Health, huge health system about the size of Ontario's health system based in Florida, St. Louis, um, Texas, um, Catholic, um, Amazon care. So Amazon care is a digital only primary care system that is uh, offered in Seattle and other places. There are no clinics. You have your GP, but you never physically go see them. Uh, amazing business model, great care. So here you've got a tech giant that has a primary care model uh, that's home-based. Um, who else was in? Two home care agencies like ours. Um, Dispatch Health, they're my favorite. You might ever uh, remember Quadjo, I talked about them. So in Ontario, we're like so excited, Chio, that we've done virtual ER, where uh, you know if you think you wanted to go to the ER, instead you just call and they triage you while you sit at home and then maybe give you a slot to come in or you don't come in at all, right? Well, dispatch took it the next level. <laughs> it's the ER at home. You never go to an ER with dispatch. You call within an hour. If the triage suggests it, the ER comes to your house. Oh, God. Oh, my right? God. Right? So, so they're in. So this coalition created a movement called Moving Health Home. And so you've got a bit of everybody you need, some tech, some home care. You've got big, huge health systems that are hospital-based. So they're cannibalizing their own business model, mm. by the way, right? Because the U.S. model... Hospitals compete right. for customers to come in. They're like, no, 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 we got to get it out. Um, and they're now on a policy uh, coalition to go influence policy to move care to the home. Money, business models, payment models, regulations. That's what Canada needs. We don't have anything like that mm. here. You got, you got, the wheels are turning. The wheels are yeah. turning. Dispatch. I, I mean, I, this, that's really exciting to me. Like, I, you know, there's obviously going to be, 
you know, it's a triage process. For example, you there's cases where you know someone, you know, they had a bleed in their brain. You're you're gonna want to come to hospital. But if it's something that you can bring to the home, and the thing too is like you were bringing up Zena too. A lot of the, um, you know, things that we think need to be done in hospital can be actually done at home. Like, like uh, I don't know this for a fact, but portable MRI machine. I thought you one of the things that brought up. Yeah, portable MRI, uh, X-ray, soon surgery, um, colonoscopy. I mean, this is the stuff we're tracking. And again, this is not like futuristic. This is in practice right now. Uh, in parts of the world, right? So soon you will 3D print your pills at home with a little easy bake oven. This is my 1980s reference here. Um, So that, you know, that disintermediates a whole supply chain. (laughs) Um, I've never heard of that. Is that, this is something that's like. Oh yeah. There's prototypes already of 3D printing, like your basic pills like that are genericized with your pretty standard APIs mm-hmm. in them, uh, the active pharmaceutical ingredient. But some of our, our colleagues at Singularity are working on a prototype uh, called IntelliPill that, you know, so most of our elderly clients uh, are polypharmacy, right? They're, you know, on average five to 12 medications mm-hmm. a day, two or three times a day. You know, uh, each where we're, you, you know, sometimes you have to titrate the dose depending on blood pressure, or, you know, whatever, what's in the urine. Um, and you know, you, you can use a pill cutter, but really, you know, so anyway, so in telepill where like literally it's a little easy bake oven <laughs> that prints one capsule that's got all the things in it that are dosed for that specific biology for that day. Wow. Vitamins can be in there, CBD oil, whatever, you know? So, um, again, those are early. Those are like, most things I talk about exist in the market that's happening, but I, there are 3d printed pills now. And guess what happens if you're a space astronaut and you have diabetes and you need insulin, you're not flying up there with vials of insulin. You're 3d bioprinting your insulin on the spaceship because all insulin is protein, which is based on DNA, which is just zero and one software code. So you just beam up the code and you print it there just like a 3d printer. Right. I mean, at the end of the day, Quadjo, all you and I are are 3D molecular printers. That's what we're made of. We just biomanufacture proteins. I am a 3D <laughs> manufactured robot. No, it's, it's like, I, I mean, this is blowing me up a little bit, like uh, just kind of the possibilities. Just once again, when you think about how convenient, how uh, scalable, uh, accessible, it's just, it, it's just, exciting to hear like it really is exciting and then you even mentioned stuff that i don't know is totally I, I, we brushed on but like even stuff like chemo at home you know what i mean like oh geez i can't believe in the 21st century the majority of chemotherapy involves people driving parking and doing it at a medical center yeah. that and again think of an access yeah. thing we only have a few centers for these i personally know frail older adults with aggressive cancer who drive from Barrie, Ontario to a hospital in Toronto to get specialized treatment three times a week. Are you kidding me? You know, that does not need to happen, right? Clinical trials, clinical trials at home. They did that during COVID. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, lots of possibility here. And like, I think there's like overall thing. They often say if you're an innovation, like people like me and you, you have to be an optimist. You know, I don't do false optimism. I don't say, oh, I have to be an optimist because otherwise, you know, no, it's like I have an abundance mindset because once you see the future, you can't unsee it. Like, I really don't worry that we're not going to have the resources to go around. It's much like you can 3D print food now. You know, you can go mine uh, rocks and minerals on the moon if you need to. You can 3D, uh, you can bio manufacture uh, fuel, like we have abundance because of our ingenuity. Um, I, I don't take a scarcity mindset, but in healthcare, because to unlock that abundance requires changing policies, frameworks, institutions, like medical school, Quadjo, why do we think in the 21st century you still have to do 12 years of training when everything else is accelerated in the world, <laughs> like, come on yeah, now. That, that is, it's funny you said that, like, it, as you said, it, I mean, you're right. 
like there's a lot i mean it is accelerating a bit they're doing this competency by design or something like that um where okay. where they're basically as a resident you advance based on how many experiences with xyz you had you know like how many intubations people you put on ventilators and if you if you progress nicely instead of five years you could be done in four years for example but you do like yeah that's like on a percentage it's not massive but i guess when it's that many people it is massive. no it is 20 percent. that's yeah it is really but massive when it, yeah. when it comes to like from the the get-go yeah it, it it you know what it is though it, it really is and i i harp on this a lot on the show but we are resistant to change like you know within medicine like even like when i was a resident I would be on call. I would start at 7.30 or 8 in the morning, and I would be off technically between noon and 1.30 p.m. the next day. I could have slept wow. anywhere from not, none at all to four, three, four hours, but I was expected to be functional. Like, what the hell is this? You know, you're not, you can't be that, you can't be functional with 30, you know, uh, not sleeping in 30 some hours. And so, you know, we did have some a bit of a culture shift where we're going towards more shifts work. But yeah, we just need to kind of I think people just need to see the so, possibilities in it, maybe like I think it's that I need they, they need a way to experiment. I think, you know, I think the driver of what you said is a little bit of resistance to change. But again, I don't think any human who's in a, you know, especially in healthcare, which to me is a calling, right? You enter this area, whether you're delivering care like someone like you or you're enabling others like someone like me. So you don't wake up and say, oh, I am going to resist change today. <laughs> like nobody, that's not human nature. Okay. We want what's best for everybody. However, there's mindsets that get ingrained. And so there's this attitude, like I've heard a lot in your example of, well, I went through yes. it. So you will yes. too. That happens in the legal profession with articling. It's like, no, 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 because that was 20 years ago. Like, you know, that's like saying, um, you know, to be able to, uh, you know, buy a, a towel from the bay, you have to go drive six hours to the store, find it, pay for it, and then drive home. It's like, no, 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 just order it. Two clicks. Boom. It's done. Thank you. Um, so I think that's one. I think the other, though, which is a bit of what I'm hinting at, is because particularly in public goods, we've created institutions, right? Institutions of medicine, you know, government institutions and policies and frameworks and institutions, just like kind of like the Catholic church are meant to never Mm -hmm. change (laughs) because you want them anchoring you and grounding you and all the wind and the, you know, will not knock them down. Right. Like, but that's the challenge is the velocity at which we can dismantle these frameworks, regulations, institutions that no longer serve the speed is way too slow, that metabolism relative to the rate at which you and I want something different, either as a health worker or as a patient, and as society is providing better tools. <laughs> so that's, it's just a big clash. And, uh, and so I'll just say this on this, though, that's a bit of, you know, one of the, we say silver linings of this COVID experience is we, we wouldn't allow these things to slow us down because there were huge right. consequences. And so, for example, when that fiscal policy emerged from Trudeau's government with CERB and that, that package that was created, that was, they said in six weeks, more financial policy was produced than in like 16 yeah. years. It would have t- taken, if you would have done the old way, a committee and have meetings and have studies and have consultation, that's universal basic income. Mm-hmm. How long has that been? You know, it basically was universal basic income. So, you know, and you've saw it in healthcare, right? Like stuff happened in 10 days that has been studied to death for 10 years. So the point is, I think that gives us a feeling that we now, whether we wanted to or not, tried some stuff, yeah. challenged our mind. And, and I, I think that's going to be memory muscle. I hope so. Just like when you work out and tear apart that thigh muscle. Um, it will serve you the next time you need to squat. Yeah. I, I <laughs> get, know, this so. really, I hope we retain that Zena. I really hope because the agility during COVID was beautiful. Something I've never seen in healthcare, even close to what we've been doing in my lifetime, where we like, even within critical cares, totally switch gears in our approaches to COVID intubate them late later instead of early, like that shift, like yep. all these kind of, um, 
you know, stop giving hydroxychloroquine, like all these things that normally would take forever. Like I like forever. often even in within critical care, there's studies that are 10 years old that we still don't adopt now. But <laughs> I, I just hope there's that shift. Yeah. There's one other thing I, that I thought uh, that would uh, uh, I don't know if you had exposure to this, but I think would also scale um, or impact the workforce. You know, I, I think of our ICU nurses, for example, they could take care of a lot of patients in my mind if it wasn't for like the charting, the paperwork and all that stuff it is so redundant. Tons of the like and it's a, a lot of that stuff is mediated by on, on policy somewhere. I don't know if it's a college or, or a hospital, what have you, but even things, yeah. simple things like that, like a, whether you had tech where you could just say exam normal and it would just, I don't know, spew off some document. Yeah. And, and I'm sure you've seen prototypes like that. I exactly. certainly have. I saw those four or five years ago where you're just doing whatever procedure and you're just talking the whole yeah. time and it's going straight into the EMR with no errors. That's totally possible. Yeah. I mean, we're working right now on um, bringing in a lot more automation, like we call it a digital employee. Mm -hmm. So, you know, everyone on this podcast can listen. Think of like the, the, the same 10 types of transactions you do of like an email comes in, you reply this, then they ask that, then you answer this. And then, but the, the, the 20 steps later, finally, maybe there's an interview or a meeting or a, you know, like these really high volume, but they use up so much time of your precious mm -hmm. humans that they can't spend doing value add like you just described. Uh, we're now, there's some great companies, including Canadian coming that they'll just basically have a thing crawl and watch how you do the same 20 emails over and over again. And they basically then replicate that as a digital human email. Uh, and it does it for you. But for the person you're interacting with, they don't notice the difference. It's not a chat bot. It's literally just you extending. So that could go in any direction, charting. Absolutely. Like, and then what I love, it's all about, like, I, I think you and I probably have come from the same cloth. Like I spent a lot of time thinking about how to be more efficient with my time, my day, everything. Like I, I read efficiency books and what have you. That's exactly yeah. the reason why I have a virtual assistant. God bless you, Sarah. Uh, just going through those emails, I think you had to deal with it a little bit too to get this, this uh, interview happening. But yes, give putting me yeah. or others healthcare professionals in a position where they could add, have that value add. Why not? It's like, it's an amplifier. You know what I'm saying? It's an amplifier. And I think we have to be careful of the cult of productivity. Cause that's been, there's been a backlash on, you know, all these tools, you know, so now you can go do more. It's not so you can do more. you right. You don't have Sarah. So you can, you know, do 10 X in a day, what you normally would have done. It's so that the time you have, you can have space, and you can bring humanity to the parts of healthcare that really need your humanity. Is, you know, that's the absolutely. idea. What I tell people, cause they, you know, they hear me talk a lot about efficiency and, and things. And I, and my argument is it allows me to be more compassionate to me. It's compassionate. Yeah. This is what the driver is to be able to sit yeah. down with a loved one as their loved one is dying, knowing that I don't have 58 other things to do. I could sit down, look at you in the eye and say, I'm here for you. What are your concerns? Knowing that there's not that barrier or the, you know, the, the, that huge weighing on your mind that you have 58 things to do. This is why it's important to think about efficiency. This is why, and then yeah. give you the resources to be able to, as far as I'm concerned, allow for the, the tools for people to be able to provide more fit, um, um, compassionate quality care. Um, so yes, I know it's maybe taboo to say it, but I think it, in my mind, it equals, uh, an ability to be able to provide compassionate care. And that has to be the lens. I think that's a bit of this rhetoric where they say, Oh, AI will replace 80% of doctors. Um, you know, technology is going to cause people to get fired. Like that is the wrong language. Mm -hmm. And it's actually, frankly, just not true because we will never ever have enough health workers ever to meet the demands of our population. So nobody gets fired mm -hmm. ever. Uh, if anything, we're going to always have a shortage. However, a lot of the jobs you do will change significantly. The way it looks. And, you know, yeah. the way it looks, where you spend your time. And that's happened in every other industry, right? Like you don't go to a librarian anymore at a library and say, here's my query on a little index <laughs> card. And then they go away and come back with six books. Like, you don't need to do that. Right. And another example, I always say, so I, I did my undergrad in Windsor 
and we didn't have a medical school and I was in biochem. So to get my journal articles, I had to drive to Detroit, Michigan to Wayne State University because they had a medical school. Um, go to the big library, go to the stacks, get on the ladder, pull out the old you know, JBC journals, uh, go to the photocopier, use all my money, which I had very little to photocopy the freaking articles. Most of the time, my car would get broken into, <laughs> you know, because I was in downtown yeah, Detroit, scared right. for my life. Remember once I got broken into and I called the 911 from a payphone and I got put on hold. <laughs> I was like, what? You know, uh, so. You know what I mean? And, um, and then I would come home. So that was my whole Saturday in the fourth year of undergrad, <laughs> getting articles from Detroit. Oh, what, would, what would that be right now, uh, Quadjo? How oh, long would that take to get my yeah, six four, articles? Yeah, 4.3 <laughs> 25 seconds. Of, uh, but, yeah. okay, so you know what I mean? Like that's what this does so that I work my time on maybe research yep. and writing my report. Being with your family. <laughs> Being with my family, boyfriend at the time, but yes. No, that is, (laughs) this is so funny. I, yeah, I try to, no offense to all our Detroit fans, but I try to avoid that city like the plague. Back then, now it's an amazing, amazing city. Fair enough, fair (laughs) enough. A couple other points that I want to hit up, um, more comment, I guess, just the workforce idea of caregiver economy. Like, you know what? Preach to this, the idea that PSWs and other healthcare professionals are going to be of truly valued when you see what they do. And we saw, unfortunately, some PSWs pass away from COVID because of, you know, for a few reasons. But, uh, you know, you see the work that they put in, the care they're given to your loved ones. Um, it just breaks your heart to think that a lot, there's a significant amount that have to be at different sites just to make ends meet. You know what I mean? Like they're taking care of your loved ones in their most vulnerable spot. You know what I mean? Like this is yep. the, the idea that I, I never put this together, but the idea that this, they're going to be valued like the, for get their true value is beautiful to me, Zaina. I, I, I'm really glad that. Yeah. I mean, again, I'm basing, and this is the discussion because we, we look back at the past crises to see what emerged that were like, let's call them unintended consequences. Um, and like that was one was the elimination of serfdom and this kind of uh, elevation of the essential economy or the caregiver economy, you know, and like, there are many others like this, right? If you look back like World War II, like brutal crisis, but we got the internet out of that. We got radar out of that, you know, we got uh, some aircraft engine technology out of that, that allows you and me to fly to Rome in a day, you know, so, um, uh, so, you know, uh, 9-11, right? You know, we we learned that overnight w- we would change our beliefs, attitudes, and behaviors around our own data and our own security for the public good, right? We allowed surveillance economy to emerge. Well, that's the COVID tracing app. Same thing, you know, like we're allowing an app every 15 seconds <laughs> to t- say where I am and share that with some database. Are you? Are you kidding me? Would you have agreed to that a year ago? <laughs> you know, so so I think there are patterns we can take comfort that things do come out, and then our job is to make sure it happens. Hundred percent. I I I love it. I love it, Zena. Before we go, there's one other uh, topic that I couldn't help not to ask you about, and you and uh, if I'm not mistaken, you've authored material related to this. Um, where where do you see this in terms of you know the future direction when it comes to aging? I know a lot of us, especially like those that are listening to this, I'm pointing to the grays in my beard. They're coming across. Seriously, <laughs> um, I barely could get out of bed because of hockey last night. So yeah, like what? Uh, where do you see this going? So again, you know, we're uh, SE Health. We're uh, originally, you know, we're a care company, right? We've been in care for 112 years, mostly the elderly in their homes. Uh, and so, me coming in 2018 to set up uh, an, a future shop. Um, I guess that used to be the name of a Canadian company that went the way of the dodo. <laughs> but anyway, um, oops. Um, you know, we realize that we cannot create the future if we focus on care of the elderly, because now you're very narrow. Now you're in the health system and those mental models that it's actually about aging and care is just one component of these people's lives. So 
for us to understand what is the aging going to be? What are the new social constructs, beliefs, expectations, tools, frameworks, business models? We did a year of research with Idea Couture, and that led to our book, The Future of Aging. Healthcare is one chapter. There's five, uh, but the others are around housing and communities, around um, money, how you spend money, how you save money, how you leave a legacy, uh, retirement, rewirement, labor force participation. You know, that's one chapter. There's one on tech, of course, but not just for health. And then one on ageism and identity of aging. So for us, that's like our Bible. You know, if you wanted to spread Christianity, like this is our roadmap and guidebook that informs all the work my team does, because we're working on all those five futures of the five chapters. Uh, at the end of the day, here's the nutshell of the of the book's thesis, and this is what everyone's kind of saying, you know, and, and it's triggered by the baby boomers, right? So they're kind of just turning 70 now. As they went through their age waves, birth, kids, teens, entire new markets and social constructs were created because of this big wave of people, suburbs, malls, McDonald's, Toys R Us, uh, pediatricians, uh, you know? So now they're in their seventies. We don't even know what new markets they're gonna create, new types of housing, new types of financial products, new types of labor uh, models. Um, so that's, what the, that's, that's the story. And I'll just tell you, just today I saw an article that the data came out in the US of early signs of, uh, you know, there was the baby boomers. There's now a baby bust. Birth rates massively declined in this last year. Um, and so that's going to be another whole wave we're going to now follow, <laughs> you know, that's going to change society. Uh, and so we just wanted to be ready for that. So that's what we explore in the book. And, uh, and we use it for our own work, but we now help other organizations, whether you're a bank uh, a f retail pharmacy, a hospital, government. Um, I did a talk about it with a law, law firm recently. Um, you know, how do you use this to make choices today about how you're going to pivot what you do, whether that's policy, care, product, service? Uh, how do you pivot today to meet this population where they're going? Otherwise, you're going to be left on the side. I, I love it. Like holistic. What all like all these aspects that are that are, you know, you need to be addressed amongst any human being, but our aging population, you know, I, even yeah. the, the, the thing that wasn't intuitive, but as you say it, like even the financial aspect of, of things like um, how does that change with time? And uh, I, I just I, I just really appreciate you like the forward thinking, the like not waiting for the problem to happen to actually be ahead of the game so that, you know, things are as smooth as possible, man, this is. Well, I mean, it is an honor to be able to spend all my time creating the future and playing around with the future. Not everybody can do that, obviously, but my advice to anybody, you, uh, Quadjo, uh, anybody listening, whatever you're doing, whether you work alone or you're in at work, try to protect 10% of your time, 10% on protecting the future, mm. um, you know, uh, trying new things, experimenting, testing, piloting. And if that means that 10%, that half a day a week is your side hustle, you know, maybe this podcast is your side hustle, right? Because I don't think you, Quadra, would have learned what you're learning working every day in the ICU. Not even right? close. Do a side hustle. Go work with a startup. Uh, I don't know what. Um it'll inform your day-to-day -day job every day because you can't unsee the future, right? You can't, you can't pretend you didn't see that thing or experience, you know? So then the next time somebody comes to you with something that protects the past, you'd be like, mm, no, that's inconsistent with, <laughs> you know, where the world is going. So that's my biggest advice if you can. Uh, and I think uh, if all of us spent a little bit of time creating the future, I think uh, we'll be in a really oh good God. place soon. Like I, I'm, I want to jump out through the screen. Like what Zayn is saying too, guys, like, uh, you know, in my personal life, like I, I try and schedule a bit of time for just creative thought. Like that's part of why I'm here right now. The podcast, uh, research ideas, the, uh, solving wellness that's coming through. I'll tell you about in a second, but all these things is because you have that time to think. And then once again, that scheduling it in, um, being a bit more efficient allows for that time, that creative, that creative piece. 
And I got to tell you, yep. Zaina, I'm so glad you came on the show because this is what solving healthcare is all about. It's about how do we create a, a, a healthcare narrative that is solution-based, like it provides better care, more efficient care, more compassionate care. And that's what we're talking about today, creating that roadmap, creating that vision so people see it. Because this is what happens when you talk about it like this. People are like, remember that? Remember Zaina talking to Quadro on that thing? And they're talking about how we could bring home care to home. Well, maybe we should pilot a project like this. Maybe we should. Exactly. You know what I'm it starts with a exactly. conversation. We call it changing the boogie on the show. It's all about changing that boogie because all we're trying to do is create better care for our people. And this is why, I'm, yeah. like, literally, I'm dancing, people. I'm dancing on this well, soon-to-be outro because this is what <laughs> I, this is why I'm doing what I'm doing. I'll just say, like you said, it, I think a couple of my brain hurts or my mind exploded. Like we use that metaphor and it, I do it all the time. Like a KPI for if I give a talk is like how much brain guts is like dripping <laughs> off the wall. But um, <laughs> but think about what you mean by that. All that's happened when you listen to a podcast or whatever is you had a shift yeah. in your brain. That means your mindset. That's all you need, that little shift. And then you, it, your new brain, yeah. you know. So I'll tell you, like, what keeps me going, I'll be honest, and we'll wrap up, is like, you know, sir, my job day to day is not this stuff. Like, it's actually to build new care models, new business models, scale them and test them. In three years, very little of what I've worked at has actually been mm -hmm. successful because we're working on some pretty hard stuff, but that's okay. So that's very, like, like flattening for me. <laughs> you know, I actually want results. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I kind of tell my CEO, I'm like, you know, you should fire me because, like, I... Nothing I've done has actually really been delivered at scale. However, I think my ultimate impact might be like a couple of these brain dislocations that got caused, you know, on this podcast. If one or two of your listeners today, something validates in their thinking that lets them close the gap to action. Or like one time I did a keynote for the Canadian Medical Association at their big conference, two or three docs came to me in the last three years, like Zena, just because of something about that moment, I'm now doing this, you know, that's going to be my legacy, I think. And whatever, dude, 100%, I'll take it. Do you, do you, I guess I just really wanted to emphasize what the scalability of what you're doing is like, I'm you, I, I, for me personally, like we, we work with a ton of residents. We have a platform on the show. Um, you, that one doctor might scale it up to the students, to the, their organization and that mindset shift is seen and it's contagious. <laughs> I don't care what anybody said. I, I, I like it is contagious. And when you could create that for people, it is truly changing the boogie. Well, bless you for doing this podcast because it's a very important platform. Thank you, Zena. And let me just formally thank you again for agreeing to do this show because once again, every every once in a while you do a show and you get, I call it juice to like want to do better, to to realize what your calling is. Just that nice reminder of why you're doing what or why we're doing what we're doing. So I am super grateful. Thank you very much. And you know, you're coming back on the show for shizzle. <laughs> oh, shizzle. <laughs> Thank you so much. All right. Bam. Huh. I hope you appreciated the enthusiasm on that one because that was just pure freshness coming at you in full effect. Thank you, Zaina. Again, that was incredible. Just to give you some context too, like this is what we're trying to do. We have that solving wellness platform coming through, really trying to improve the reduced burnout amongst healthcare providers offering, you know, exercise, uh, resilience, nutrition advice, productivity, all in one platform. This is, this is what we're trying to do. We're trying to change that boogie, yo. If you love us, leave a comment wherever you listen to podcasts. Give us a five-star rating. Helps with the visibility of the show. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube at Quadcast. Leave any comments at Quadcast99 at gmail.com. Check out our store, solvinghealthcare.ca backslash shop, where you got our conferences, you got our apparel. You know what I'm saying? How we represent. Anyway, guys, thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. And we'll connect again real quick. Peace.